Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. We're so glad you're here. We know some others are tapping in momentarily, and um, it's great to learn from my chaver and, and um Rabbi Truboff again today uh, on this fascinating topic. And it's great to partner with our great uh, partner, BMHBJ. Um, and it's our honor that our, our uh, my, my, my colleague, Rabbi Yaakov Khaitavsky, will uh, offer Rabbi Truboff's intro today. Welcome, Rabbi Yaakov. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, just a brief introduction about today's very special uh, guest teacher. Uh, Rabbi Zachary Truboff is the director of rabbinic education for the International Beit Din. And his primary work focuses on educating rabbis about halachic solutions to the pressing issue of the aguna, the chained woman. He is the author of Torah Goes Forth from Zion, Essays on the Thought of Rav Kook and uh, Rav Shagar. And if you want to know who Rav Shagar is, you need to talk to the expert on Rav Shagar, and that is Rabbi Trubaf. Um and his writings on contemporary Jewish thought and Zionism have appeared in noted intellectual and popular journals, the Lair House on Arut Sheva and Akdamot. Before making Aliyah, he was the rabbi of the Cedar Sinai Synagogue in Cleveland, Ohio. He has taught widely in a variety of adult education settings, including the Wexner Heritage Program and the Hartman Institute. He is a musmach of Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, as well as from Yeshivat Chovevei Torah. It's my pleasure to uh, turn the program over to Rabbi Trubaf for what's going to be a magnificent session today. Thank you for the uh, warm words of introduction. It's uh, great to be with you, whether it's the morning, afternoon, evening, depending where in the world you might might exactly uh, uh, be. Um, the topic that we're gonna be exploring over the next hour or so is one that on the one hand could be looked at as being somewhat not esoteric, but not necessarily directly relevant to the way we typically think about our lives as Jews. In some ways you might argue it's like a rabbinic topic. It's the kind of topic rabbis are really interested in, but maybe you know your average Jew, Jew in the pew, like doesn't always necessarily think or think the questions that we're gonna look at are so important. But what I want to try to show is the way in which the questions we're going to explore about sovereignty, about authority, about who's in charge, are questions that emerge from every political or legal system that we find ourselves in. Um, and I think that just sort of to give as a as a as a uh, as a headline before we get further into things to recognize that while we're going to be looking at rabbinic sources, rabbinic thinkers, rabbinic texts. What I keep wanting to do over the course of our time together is try to pull back to the broader conceptual and political questions that often emerge from uh, what we're going to be what we're going to be looking at. The title of this year is "Who's in Charge: Philosophy of Halacha Through the Eyes of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein." Now, I'm not sure how many people here are familiar with those two names, but I want to just give a little bit of background on both of them so you can understand why they're important, and, and particularly how they can help us frame this very important question. Uh, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik 
was in many ways the leading modern Orthodox rabbi thinker uh, during the 20th century, born to a very illustrious religious fa uh, rabbinic family in Lithuania and Europe before the war, comes to America, uh, is basically made Rosh Hashiva Vishnu University. His father had previously been the Rosh Hashiva. And Rabbi Soloveitchik becomes this profoundly leading figure uh, because of his brilliance, because of his ethical sensitivity, because of his incredible knowledge of Torah. Um, he becomes an extraordinarily important figure, and he spends much of his life teaching students in yeshiva and thinking about deep and important religious questions. Um, the one who, the rabbi that we are sort of opposing a little bit in contrast to him is Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who in many ways has a similar but different orientation. They're actually cousins. They actually share, I can't remember if it's second or third cousins, but they are cousins. Um, Rabbi Feinstein uh, grows up in what we consider today to be to be Russia, the Pale of Settlement. Uh, he comes to America uh, after already having been a rabbi, at least for some time, in what at that time is the is the Soviet Union. Uh, he comes to America. Again, his brilliance is pretty much recognized from, from the get-go. Already in, in Russia, it's pretty much recognized how, how profoundly brilliant he is. He comes to America and ultimately becomes the leading halachic authority in America in the 20th century. Right, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein is the one who everybody goes to with their halacha questions. And because Rabbi Feinstein lives in the 20th century in a time when the world is changing, Judaism is changing, technology is changing, he is presented with some of the most difficult questions of Jewish law that have ever been fielded by any rabbi in Jewish history. And what is so striking is not just that he gets asked these questions, is that his answers are often seen as authoritative by very wide sections of uh, Jewry, at least Orthodox Jewry, those who see themselves as, uh, as you know, fully bound to uh, to traditional Jewish, uh, Jewish halacha, Jew Jewish law. Um, Rabbi Soloveitchik's life is oriented as a, you know, a leader, an intellectual, a teacher. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's rabbinic life is oriented as a uh, halachic authority. Um, and those are two different orientations. And maybe we'll kind of pick up on some of that as we look at their, at their sources, at these sources. But both have to fundamentally grapple with the question of, of like I, I like the Shira's title with who's in charge right at the end of the day when it comes to to issues of of, of Jewish law. Now, like I said, this question of, of sovereignty is always a question that any kind of legal or political system has to face. So when I actually chose this the sheer topic and title, it was um, a few months ago when Israel was in the midst of a very, very heated uh, public debate around legal reform. Right. If you're familiar with any of this, right, the current ruling coalition led by Bibi Netanyahu, part of his election push when they were elected about a year ago was that they were going to institute a major legal reform. And part of this emerges from the fact that Israel does not have a constitution. Right. So typically, if you're looking at a political system or a legal system and you want to know who's in charge, like, where do you go? Right. Like you go to the Constitution. Right. This was I, I was a shul rabbi for, for for a decade. And, you know, again, like when there's a debate in the shul about who gets to make a ruling about something, is it the rabbi, is it the president, is it the board, is it every member in the shul? Right. What do you have to do? Right. You pull out the synagogue constitution and you see and you see what it says. So Israel does not have a, a constitution, um, which means the question of who's in charge here is much more open ended for better and for worse than perhaps in other, um, uh, you know, nation states. Um, and the legal reform was basically being proposed around the, the contention, right, that the Israeli Supreme Court had too much authority, 
right? That when it came to questions about who's in charge, at least some people felt that too often the answer was the Israeli Supreme Court. And that was seen as problematic because, as we know, Supreme Court justices are generally not voted in by the public, right? In Israel, they are selected by a committee that is made up of lawyers, judges, and politicians. In America, they're chosen by, obviously, our people's political representatives. Um, but in either way, there was a sense that the Supreme Court had too much power, right? Too much ability to decide what the law is, what the law should be. Um, and the contention that BB basically ran on and many of his uh, coalition partners ran on is that if there's a question about who's in charge, it has to be the Knesset. It has to be the prime minister. It can't be right the Supreme Court. Um, so debates about who's in charge are always going to be fraught because as maybe we'll come to grasp, there aren't really final answers to these questions. But we always have to be asking these questions. And many of our political fights, even our most heated political fights are around this question, right? Like who's in charge, right? I mean, I hate to reduce the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to any kind of like simple idea because it is not a simple conflict. If it was, it would have been resolved by now. But at the same time, right, if you had to argue, like if there's one question that this conflict revolves around, to a certain extent, it's about who's in charge over what parts of this land, right? Like, so that question is one that, again, becomes inescapable. What I want to begin with is we're going to start with Rabbi Soloveitchik, and then we're going to move to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And in Rabbi Soloveitchik's, probably his most famous work, Halachic Man, um, we'll see how he begins right away uh, with um, grappling with this question about, about who's in charge. And it's a question I should also add that Chazal, the rabbi's rabbinic literature, is kind of obsessed with, right? That this question of who exactly um, is it that is that is in charge of Torah, in charge of uh, of, of Jewish law. So the excerpt that I want to begin with, as I mentioned, is from Halachic Man, Rabbi Soloveitchik's great work. And this particular citation opens up with two rabbinic sources, famous rabbinic sources, rabbinic sources you might have heard of from uh, before. And they're both getting at the question about who's in charge. And one of the great radical elements of the rabbis is that even though they spend their life studying God's Torah, to a certain extent, the rabbis come to the conclusion that maybe God isn't the one who's in charge, right? This is an idea you may have heard before, but Rabbi Soloveitchik here highlights it in a very, very uh, tangible way. Um, the first Gemara that he cites here from Baba Metziah, uh, he says it relates that there was a dispute between the Holy One, blessed be he, and the Heavenly Academy regarding a case where there is a doubt as to whether the bright spot of a leper preceded the white hair or the white hair preceded the bright spot. So let me just clarify for a moment what's going on here. There happens to be a rabbi who overhears that God is arguing with either the angels or other rabbis in heaven, right? There's a debate. There's a halachic debate going on in heaven, right? Because when Jews imagine what heaven's going to be, right, I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, uh, slightly inappropriate here, right? When non-Jewish Americans imagine, right, what heaven's going to be, they imagine like, you know, golf courses and beaches, right? When the Jews imagine what heaven is going to look like, it's studying Gemara, right? It's not just studying Gemara, it's having debates about the meaning of, uh, of, the, uh, of, of the Talmud. All right. So in this particular case, the rabbi overhears a debate happening in heaven between God and, and other rabbis, other angels. And the debate is about a particular halachic definition of leprosy. And basically, this debate up in heaven, it's not getting resolved. Right? Each side presents arguments. The other side presents arguments. And there's no resolution to it. And what's striking is that you would think if God is arguing with whether it's rabbis or angels, right, there should be an easy way to resolve that argument. Right? Because it's God, right? God is supposed to be the, the answer to the question of who's in charge, especially up in heaven. 
right? But nonetheless, that's not what happens, Rabbi Soloveitchik tells us. Instead, right, um, um, Rabbi, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Bar Nachmani, who is a rabbi overhearing this down on earth, right, he is the one chosen by God to be the final arbiter, right? Rabbi Soloveitchik continues, flesh and blood mortal man decides between the Holy One, blessed be he, and the heavenly academy, right? That God actually invites the rabbi down on earth to make the decision. Um, and again, the reason this is so radical is because it seems to be fundamentally undermine, undermining God's authority, right? God is the commander, right? God is the one who says jump, and we as Jews say how high. So how could there ever be a moment where God is perplexed or God is arguing, and it's human beings' job to resolve that, to say to God what the real answer is going to be? And again, as I said before, if the question about uh, sovereignty, right, about authority is always who's in charge, well, the answer here, Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying, is not God or the other angels or rabbis God is debating with. It's Rabbi Bar Nachmani, right? It's a rabbi here uh, down on earth. That's the first rabbinic story. The second rabbinic story uh, is probably the more well-known one, um, and it involves a dispute between Eliezer ben Horkinus and the other rabbis of his time. Um, and Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus is perhaps the greatest rabbi of his time, but more importantly, Rabbi Eliezer speaks with what appears to be divine authority. Because when Rabbi Eliezer states his interpretation of the halacha, he is able to command miracles to essentially uh, back up, legitimate that interpretation, right? If there's not, you know, again, we, we all get into arguments with people, heated arguments, particularly about politics, right? If there's nothing that we want more in that moment when we're arguing with somebody viscerally is like the very heavens to open up and basically say, you're right. Right. Like, because, again, we can bring proofs, we can bring evidence, we can bring arguments that contradict the other side. But rarely is it the case, if ever, that we can bring God into it. And that's what Rabbi Eliezer seems to be able to do. He's able to bring God into the conversation by 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 performing miracles, which would seem to give off the impression that if the question is who's in charge, it should be Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. When he has an answer, that's the one we should be uh, be following. Um, what Rabbi Soloveitchik describes, again, just a very brief summary of the story, when there was a dispute between Rabbi Eliezer and the sages regarding the purity of the oven of Achnai, right, a debate about this particular type of oven and to what extent it could become pure or impure, a heavenly voice declared, why do you disagree with Rabbi Eliezer, seeing that in all matters the halacha is in accordance with his ruling? Now, I will note here for a moment that this is now uh, a departure, or I should say, up, up to this point, this is actually similar to what we saw with Rabbi Barnachmani, right? What's striking is the heavenly voice is saying, well, God isn't the final authority. God's not in charge. It's Eliezer ben Horkinus. Now, that's 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 radical because, again, we're saying that human beings in, are in charge. But what's striking is at this point in the story, it's just one human being is in charge. One human being whose sovereignty is being legitimated by divine authority, that is Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. Right. What happens is even though Rebbe Eliezer, a human being, has been being told by everybody, by to everybody, by God, that he's in charge, we're told as follows. Rabbi Yeshua arose and said, Lo the Torah is not in heaven, which is Rabbi Yeshua's way of saying that even if somehow there is a human being who has been invested with authority vis-a-vis -vis the Torah, eh, heaven doesn't get to decide that. The Torah is not in heaven. And as we see in the context of the story, ultimately, it's acharei rabim lahatot, right? That basically the decision, the halachic decision is ultimately going to follow the majority, which is even more radical than the last story, because in the previous story, again, we're saying this 
particular rabbi is the one who gets to decide. Now we're moving beyond that to say basically maybe every rabbi has a share or a voice or a stake in saying what the what the law really is. Um, rabbi Soloveitchik continues, he says, for the Torah has already been given from Mount Sinai and we pay no attention to a heavenly voice. And the Holy One, blessed be, he smiled in that hour and said, uh, uh, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. Now what's striking, I'll just note here, that uh, how does it describe God when he says this, that my children have defeated me? It says that God smiled. Now, we like interpret that as Jews, you know, in sort of like this positive way, like God wants, you know, to empower human beings and God feels good about that when it finally happens. But I also want to note that from a traditional Jewish perspective, the children are not supposed to defeat the father, right? Like if in a family in which the children defeat the father, you would say that there's probably something dysfunctional going on in that family. So the very notion here that human beings sort of take over, like we can try to put a positive spin on that. Maybe we should put a positive spin on it. But at the same time, we have to recognize how sort of radical it is, how dis how much of a disruption it is from the way that law, structure, uh, tradition is typically supposed to function, right? In a traditional family before modernity, right? Power, who's in charge? It's the father, right? So to say the father can be defeated by the children um, that's not the way it's normally supposed to work, right? There is something radical going on here. God may be smiling, but if this was happening in our own family, right? I imagine that if our father, if we are the father, we're probably not smiling if our children rebel against us and, and, and defeat us. Rabbi Salavechi continues, he says, more if a prophet asserts with reference to any law of the Torah that God has revealed to him, that the law is thus or that, the law is in, or that the law is in accordance with so-and-so, he's a false prophet. And he has to be strangled, even if he performed a sign, a miracle, for he has come to contradict the Torah, right? He's citing here from, from Rambam Maimonides, that basically prophets don't get a say in determining what Jewish law is supposed to be, right? When the question is who's in charge, right? It's not God, it's not the prophets, right? It is, on some level, human beings, Right, the prophet, the transcendental man par excellence has no right to encroach upon the domain of the sages who decide the law on the basis of their intellect and knowledge. And for Rabbi Soloveitchik, what these stories teach us, what the thrust of rabbinic literature points to is when there's the question of who's in charge, right? The answer is the rabbis, right? They are the one who have the power to decide what halacha is supposed to be. Uh, he continues, halachic man is a mighty ruler in the kingdom of spirit and intellect. Right, there's very strong language being used here by Rabbi right? Imagining the rabbi, and we'll see this developed even more so, as a king-like figure, right? In a certain sense, the rabbis are sovereign. Nothing can lead him astray. Everything is subject to him, right? And everything falls under the rulership, basically, of, of the rabbis. Everything is under his sway and heeds his command, right? Normally, I'll just point out, if we had to ask ourselves, who is it that a Jew is subject to? Who is it? that a Jew is under their sway? Who is it that a Jew must heed their commands? We would say that's God, right? So, so again, to say that as human beings, that's the rabbis, there's something certainly very significant going on here. Even the Holy One, blessed be he, has, as it were, handed over his impromptor, his official seal and Torah matters to man. It is as if the creator of this world himself abides by man's decision and instruction, right? And this is a, a, a biblical idea, but also a rabbinic idea, right? That God has a seal. Right. And if you're familiar with this, this comes up periodically in Tanakh, in the Bible. Right. There, a ruler has a seal because when the ruler issues a decree, right, their seal is basically taken, right, dipped in wax 
and put on the decree. And the whole idea of having the ruler's seal on the decree is the seal is what proves that the uh, the decree has the binding power of, of law behind it, right? So when God, I'll just point out, when, when Ahasuerus empowers Haman, right, he gives him his seal, right? When Paro empowers Yosef, he gives him the seal. Because if you have the seal, it's as if you almost have God's, you know, authority, right? Or the king's authority, I should say. Um, and in this case, what Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying, that God gave his seal uh, to the rabbis. That's what gives them the authority. When they issue a ruling, when they interpret the law, it's as if they take God's stamp, God's seal, and stamp it on their on their ruling, and that's what gives it uh, its authority. Um, Rabbi Soloveitchik continues, the earthly court decrees and the Holy One, blessed be he, complies. Right? Very striking language here. Right? We, instead of it being God says jump and we say how high, Literally, Rav Soledadjik is saying it's the opposite. We say jump, and God says how high. If the earthly court in matters of law and judgment, the halacha is always in accordance with its decision. Uh, even if the heavenly court should disagree, halachic man reigns over all and is esteemed by all. No other cognitive discipline has woven crowns for its heroes to the extent that halacha has done. In no other field of knowledge has man been adorned with the crown of absolute royalty, as in the realm of Torah. Glorification of man reaches here the peak of its splendor. And the language that I want us just to be sensitive to is that before I was just saying God takes his seal and hands it to, to the rabbis. Now Rabbi Soloveitchik is being even more explicit. What is what does God take and hand over to the rabbis? Well, God takes God's crown off God's head, so to speak, and gives that to the rabbis to show that they are the ones who are in charge. Right, that is essentially the picture that Rabbi Soloveitchik here is 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 uh, is painting for us. And again, I keep trying to push the radicality of it um, to understand that he's not just saying you know words that sound nice, words that you know every Jew sort of just reads and smiles. But at the same time, there's something much more profound going on here. And part of the way we know that is one of the claims made by Jews, particularly in modernity, right, is the claim that is made here, but just to a much greater degree. If Rabbi Soloveitchik says we learn from the rabbis, from the Talmud, that God gave his sovereignty to the rabbis, right? They can do whatever they want with it. They can decide what it's going to be, right? The earthly court decrees, and the Holy One, blessed be he, complies. Rabbi Soloveitchik doesn't say it here, but the Gemara, when it actually makes that statement, it says even if human beings are wrong, even if they're in error, even if they're intentionally in error, right? God still is going to agree with them. Now, Later on in Jewish history, people will come along and say, well, if we take this seriously, that means that halacha, Jewish law, the Torah is fully in human hands. Maybe it's not just the rabbis. Maybe it's all human beings. And if God is basically giving us our authority to do what we want with it, then we should be able to make any changes to it that we ultimately want. Right? That's what authority means. Authority isn't just that you get to answer questions when people have them. Authority means you get to jump and everybody else gets to say uh, how high. Um, and the fundamental challenge here is that if you give authority over, you give it over potentially, you know, completely. Um, and that is going to be a, a fundamental challenge. Now, when we look at rabbinic literature, I won't get into all of this. I'm just going to sort of grab highlights from it. Um, this idea of the crown of Torah is a very, very powerful motif, right? Because that's what Rav Soloveitchik was saying. God took off his crown and basically gave that crown to the rabbis. So there's a famous statement in Pirkei Avot, Rabbi Shimon Omer, Shloshak, Tarimhem, right? There are three crowns, Keter Torah, Keter Kahuna, Keter Malchut, right? The crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, the crown of kingship. The Keter Shem Tov, Ole Al Gabehen, 
right? And there's actually a fourth crown that's even better than the other ones, the crown of a good name. Now, when you read this, right, we can sort of recognize within it this sort of division of powers that takes place within Judaism already outlined in the Torah, right? You have rabbis, you have kings, and you have priests. And they, to a certain extent, have overlapping but also separate uh, domains. Um, but what's interesting is the Rambam, in his commentary, and to a certain extent Rabbi Soloveitchik is drawing on this, wants to emphasize that of these three crowns, really four crowns, right, you might think Keter Shem Tov is the greatest, because that's actually what the Mishnah said, right? It's above all of them, right? Or the other three at least are equal. But the Rambam understands it a little differently. He says, these three great attributes were given to the nation, especially to those who make its laws. They are the priests of the kingship in the Torah. Aaron, Moshe's brother, merited the priesthood, and David merited the kingship, King David. The crown of Torah is available to all, all who want to come and be crowned with it. Right? Part of what makes the crown of Torah so special, so important, is that the other two crowns can only be inherited. Right, But the crown of Torah is essentially democratic. It is available to anybody who can come and learn. Anybody uh, can literally uh, walk over and put the crown on their head if they're willing to invest the time to learn Torah. Um, they said, perhaps you might think this crown is worthless than the other two. Meaning, if the crown of Torah is open to anyone, then you might think it's not that valuable, right? Things that are accessible to everybody are not the things that are most valuable, right? Things that are valuable are things that we find less of in the world. They're not common and they're not easily accessible, right? So you might think Torah is not worth so much. However, the Rambam doesn't want us to think that way. He says, actually, the crown of Torah is greater than the other two. And the two others are contained within it. As it says in Mishlei, through me, kings reign and rulers decree just laws. Through me, princes rule. Right. And Rambam's point here is that all the authority of the of these crowns, right, the crown of kingship, the crown of priesthood, they all descend from God, which means they all ultimately descend or derive from the Torah. And not only that, even though the Mishnah said the crown of the good name was better than all the others, the Rambam kind of corrects us on that. He says the crown of a good name comes from the Torah in the sense that studying it and doing it is what makes a truly good name, right? If you want to believe that a good name is better than anything else, then the way to get that is through Torah, right? So all the crowns, their authority derives from Torah. And the only way to even achieve the crown of the good name uh, is through the Torah itself. Right. So what we see Rambam, you know, picking up on here and Rav Soloveitchik has already pointed us to it. Right. Is that if there is a crown that rules them all, it is the crown of Torah. And who wears the crown of Torah? It is the rabbis. They are essentially the ones in charge. Now, I want to be clear for Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, as much as the, the rabbis sort of wear the crowns and are in charge, he has a deep ambivalence about what that power might mean. Right. Even though they have authority. There is nothing I would say that what I was trying to say is that Rabbi Soloveitchik has a deep ambivalence about power. You give too much power to a person, right? They're going to do bad things with it. That in many ways is the lesson of Tanakh, right? You give a king too much power, they abuse it, they hurt people. That's why there have to be prophets who speak truth to power, to challenge the abuse of power. So for Rabbi Soloveitchik, rabbis might have authority. They may be in charge. But he doesn't want them to be in charge in any kind of dictatorial sense or any authoritarian sense. And he writes extensively in, in several places that he believes that a rabbi's power is derived from relationships, right? The teacher-student relationship in particular, right? That people listen to rabbis not because they have to, but because they want to, right? It's a relationship in which they 
you know, again, they build that relationship because they believe there is something true there, something holy there um, that they want to uh, essentially have access to. And that is the way that Rabbi Soloveitchik wants to envision, for the most part, rabbinic authority, rabbinic power. Rabbis are in charge, but at the same time, they can't just tell human beings what they want to do. Right? There's a strange irony here for Rabbi Soloveitchik. In a certain sense, human beings can tell God what to do, but they can't tell their other human beings what to do, right? And that is um, something that he, you know, struggles with through a lot of his, uh, a lot, a lot of his writings. I won't get into it in any detail. Like, I, I, I will um, note that in, in a letter that he writes in 1965 to a, a student of his, uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, somebody who Rabbi Shmuley and I know very well, um, he's very explicit about this. Uh, he says, um, basically, Rabbi Greenberg differed from Rabbi Soloveitchik on many issues, and he had reached out to him at a particular one, and he had kind of wanted to know Rabbi Soloveitchik's uh, position. Should he do it? Should he not do it? And Rabbi Soloveitchik kind of made it clear, I, I don't think you should do that. And at the same time, what he essentially says is as follows. He says, you are certain, this is sort of six here, you're certainly entitled to your opinion as much as I am to mine. I've never demanded conformity or compliance, even from my children. I believe in freedom of opinion and freedom of action. Right. That basically Rabbi Soloveitchik would say at the end of the day, you've got to decide for yourself. Right. That was the extent to which the rabbis might be in charge, but human beings have to be able to other Jews have to be able to decide, you know, for them for themselves. But there is another side for Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, one that is struggling in many ways to grapple with the idea that basically rabbis have all the power, because the problem is if you give over to rabbis, the crown, right? The crown of interpretation, the crown that enables them to say, this is what the law means, right? You have a challenge because at the same time, as much as we, he wants to claim rabbis have the ability to decide what the law is, right? Once you give that freedom over, what is to prevent the law from fundamentally changing? What's to prevent the law from changing again and again and again throughout 2000 years? For Rabbi Soloveitchik, the idea of tradition is of vast importance for him, right? The Torah we have is the same Torah that was received at Harsinai. And if so, if the rabbis have the ability to change the laws, how does that preserve the truth of Torah? How does that preserve the eternality of Torah? That it's a Torah, it's emet, that it's lenetzach, that it's forever, that it's not constantly changing in each generation when there's a new group of rabbis who decide what they want it to be. Um, and Rabbi Soloveitchik in his writings as much as he tries to emphasize the rabbis are in charge, but at the same time, they can't command anybody to do anything. There's a flip side to that, which is that in order to preserve the tradition, we have to have rabbis who basically receive the tradition and who must be listened to. And this is an idea that he develops already in the 1950s, and it gets picked up by some of his more, you might say, conservative students, where he basically argues that, yes, a teacher can have many students, but only certain students are the ones who receive the full weight of the tradition. And he actually points to an example from Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses and, and Joshua, where the Rambam himself says that Moses taught the other elders in his time, but only Yoshua basically received the tradition, right? Part of the Rambam's task, and this is what Rabbi Soloveitchik believes in too, is that the only way we know that we have a tradition is if we can show that tradition was passed down authentically from generation to generation to generation, right? If we can have a chain of tradition, we can prove the tradition's authenticity and its truth. And the Rambam points out that in the chain of tradition, not all of Moshe's students received it, right? They all received the Torah, they all learned the Torah, but they didn't. They weren't the official bearers of the tradition, what, what Rabbi Soloveitchik calls the Bali Masora. Um, and what happens is, is that the tradition can only be preserved not if everybody's learning Torah, 
But if there are certain individuals who receive the tradition and are able to embody it, to be able to pass it down for the next generation. Um, and this distinction becomes very important for Rabbi Soloveitchik because not every rabbi is a Bale Masora, right? Only certain rabbis can be that because that's the only way to preserve tradition, to make sure that it is true and it is eternal. Um, and he basically goes on to argue that if, you know, when it comes to the Bali Masora, those who are the true receivers of the tradition and those who truly pass it down, right? You have to listen to them. You have to listen to them like they're the Sanhedrin, right? Which it means you have to listen to them so that when they say jump, you say how high. Um, this is a very different spin on the idea that there are rabbis, rabbis wear the crown, right? In this case, he's saying they really wear the crown, right? And at least some of them, and you really have to listen to them, at least about a certain things. And his student, uh, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, he takes this idea and, and he also develops it and to a certain extent, clearly uses it to sort of describe his own relationship to Rabbi Soloveitchik, that he's the true student. He's the one who's received the Masorah. And when it comes to people at that level, right, other rabbis can't really disagree with them, right? They can they can have an opinion, but they don't really get to uh, decide. Um, um, and in fact, he, he actually cites here, again, citing Rabbi Soloveitchik himself saying something like this, where he notes that when it came to Rabbi Soloveitchik's grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, one of the great pre-war rabbinic leaders. Um, he says that, um, 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 he says if his grandfather, this is in source nine, the genius Rav Chaim gave over his opinion on some halachic matter. And if all the other rabbis who are members of the rabbinic organization revealed their opinion as opposed to his, of course it would not be relevant to say that in this case, we follow the majority, right? Because the point was like, Rav Chaim was way above all of them. And therefore, when Rechaim thought the Allah should be a certain way, it didn't matter if everybody disagreed with him, right? They should know better to go along uh, with him. Um, so as much as, again, Rabbi Soloveitchik wants to claim the rabbis have authority, but ultimately we have to choose whether we listen to them, at the same time to preserve tradition, to show us that it's holy and true, there have to be some rabbis who are, it's as if they are Moshe coming down from our Sinai, right? They carry God's word in its totality. They carry its truth. And we have to not just learn, but listen to them, do what they say. Right? At the end of the day, it's not that all rabbis wear the crown and we choose as Jews whether we listen. There are certain rabbis who wear the crown and we absolutely have to listen. Right? This is the approach of Rabbi Soloveitchik. I, I want to contrast this with the approach of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Um, and again, Rabbi Soloveitchik shows us in a certain sense is the inescapability of always having to come up with an answer to who's in charge. Right. Rabbi Salvechik started by wanting to say, well, the question is who's in charge? It's the rabbis, but you get to choose whether you listen to them. Well, that doesn't really work over time because at a certain point, other people are going to have opinions and you're going to still have to decide. So Rabbi Salvechik still comes down on the side of when you ask the question who's in charge, there are certain rabbis, the Bali Masora, the important ones, the ones who really authentically grasp and hold and bear the tradition that you that wear the crown and you have to listen to. Right. Rabbi Feinstein takes a very, very different approach. And in part because he turns to a different uh, Gemara, a different story from the Talmud. And again, you might be aware of this, that the way we think about the world, the way we think about law, it, it emerges primarily from the stories that we tell ourselves. This particular story in Masechet Menachot is so powerful for and important because it recognizes that the tradition isn't just one unbroken chain going back to Moshe at Har Sinai, right? Things are a little bit more complicated than that. And therefore, the question of who's in charge is going to be a little bit more complicated than that. It can't just be that when we ask who's in charge, it's the rabbi who is carrying all the laws, all the teachings that Moshe has been passing, you know, they've been passing down for, for generations. And here's how we know this. This is the story of Masechah Menachot. It describes that when Moshe went up on Mount Sinai, 
um, to receive the Torah, right? He's up there 40 days, 40 nights, right? What is going on those 40 days, 40 nights? He's learning the rules. He's, he's being there with God. And what this particular story imagines is that Moshe actually sees God writing the Torah. But Moshe doesn't just see God writing the Torah. Moshe sees God. And if you've ever seen a scribe before, right? They're not just writing the letters, right? He sees that God is also drawing or writing crowns on each one of the letters, right? If you look at a Sefer Torah, if you know anything about Jewish scribal arts, right? The letters that appear there aren't just like standard printed letters, right? Each letter has like little crowns on it, little decorations on the top. And Moshe does what I think any child would do when they see that for the first time, right? They would ask, well, God, why are you putting the crowns on, on those letters? Like, what's the point of that, right? Because Moshe clearly, clearly doesn't know. Um, and what does God say? God says to him, he says, there is a man who is destined to be born after several generations. Akiva ben Yosef is his name. He's destined to derive from each and every thorn of these crowns, mounds and mounds of halachot, right? God says to Moshe, right? The reason I put these crowns on is because there's meaning in those crowns, on those letters, right? But you, Moshe, are not going to realize that, right? Only Akiva ben Yosef, with the great Rabbi Akiva, you know, centuries later is going to be the one to learn the meaning that is contained hidden within those within those crowns. Um, and again, you can imagine if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, you think you're the one receiving the Torah, right? You want to know who this guy is, right? God is basically saying there's a rabbi who's greater than you, Moses, right? So basically Moses turns to God. He says, master of the universe, show him to me. Show me this great Akiva, right? So God says, turn around. And what happens? Moshe turns around. He finds himself in Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash, right? And specifically, he goes to the back of the room and sits at the last row uh, to hear Rabbi Akiva teaching. But the problem that Moshe has is that he can't understand anything that Rabbi Akiva is saying, right? And this is not good, right? Moshe is Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher, right? Moshe should be able to understand all of the Torah, whatever it's being taught. And yet when Moshe is in Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash, he doesn't understand a word that he's saying. Um, and the Talmud tells us that Moshe didn't feel good about that. His strength waned, right? He thought there was something wrong with him. And when Rabbi Akiva, only when Rabbi Akiva arrives at a topic and the teacher asks him, where did you get this from, Rabbi Akiva? How did you learn this? Rabbi Akiva says, answers the students, it's halacha Moshe misinai. This is a teaching that was taught to Moshe at Sinai. And only when Moshe hears that, does he finally feel okay again. Because he realizes that the Torah he's hearing in the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Akiva is connected to the Torah that he heard, at, that he received from God at, 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 at Mount Sinai. Moses basically finds himself back again with God at Harsinai, right? The moment he's taken out of the classroom back on the mountain. Uh, and he turns to God and he says to God, he says, master of the universe, you have a man as great as Rabbi Akiva. There's a rabbi who's going to come, who's going to know more Torah than I am. And yet you give the Torah to me, to Moshe. Why? And again, if we, we know Moshe's humility, it's actually pretty easy to imagine him saying this. God says to him, be silent. You know, this is the way it arose. Uh, you know, I decided to do this, which is really not much of an answer. Basically, God is saying to Moses, when Moses asked, why are you giving it to, to, to me and not Rabbi Kiva, who's going to be able to learn more? God's answer is kacha. That's just the way it is. Right. Which I should point out, by the way, is that's what a parent says to their child when the child asks a question where the parent either can't or won't give the answer to. Because when you really wear the crown, you get to answer questions like that. Um, but the question here is still stands for us, right? 
God is putting crowns on Torah and only Rabbi Kiva is going to come along later and understand the meaning that is contained within those crowns. But for our purposes, what I want to highlight, for Rabbi Soloveitchik, right, that whole discussion about the crown was essentially saying we, God takes it off his head and God hands it to the rabbis. This Gemara is a little bit different because where is the crown in this story? Who's wearing the crown in the story? Right? It's not motion. It's not Rabbi Akiva. It's the letters of Torah themselves. The letters of Torah wear the crown. That's where the authority lies. Um, and I think this is a very, very important point, one that is highlighted by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Um, and again, and I would argue, this is, we're going to look at briefly the introduction to his collection of his uh, Chuvot. To me, this is one of the most brilliant things that he ever says. And I spend all my time practically reading his Chuvot related to Aguna problems. So I'm I'm deeply familiar with many of his writings. And yet the brilliance of what he says here, you know, just blows me away even more so than his halachic uh, in, innovations. Um, in the introduction, Igor Moshe, Rav Moshe Feinstein is trying to grapple with the fact that he is a radical innovator, right? There's no other way to say it. He comes up with rulings to questions no other rabbi has answered. And the answers that he comes up with at times can appear as if almost that they depart from what the tradition might be. And again, if you ever see pictures of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, he looks like what you imagine a rabbi to look like who was born in Eastern Europe and was the greatest, you know, most brilliant rabbinic mind of his time in halacha. Right? He's got a very long beard, right? He dresses ultra-Orthodox, right? He does not look like somebody who is a radical uh, innovator. But he is self-aware that he is saying things that other rabbis don't agree with. And other rabbis would say, how do you, Rav Moshe, have the chutzpah to, to put that on paper? Um, and in the introduction, he's trying to address that to a certain extent. He opens the introduction by noting that rabbis in general, Jews in general, are caught with a contradiction, right? He notes here, there's a teaching of Masechet Sotzeg, and I won't read this inside, that basically says a person or a rabbi who rules on rabbinic questions, on questions of Jewish law, when they're not fully qualified to do so, destroys the world, right? If you answer questions that you're not qualified to answer about things that really matter, you do damage, right? That's true in halacha, it's true in any discipline where there's weight, where there's stakes, where there are consequences to the answer that is being offered, right? And again, it's supposed to make us recognize as rabbis, at least, that you got to have a lot of humility. You got to know what you don't know. Because if you get up there and you think you know, and you think you have it, like you figured it out, you spent some time on it, you know, you took a college course, you read a book, like you know the answer now, right? You can do a lot of damage, right? That's one thing you have to keep in mind. But there's another side of the coin, which is that at the same time that a rabbi has to be careful not to answer questions if they're not qualified to do so, a rabbi who is qualified to answer questions and doesn't answer them when the question is presented to them also does damage, right? And this is very important because sometimes the discourse amongst rabbis is, right, don't answer the question, right? Have humility, save it for, you know, the great ones, but you shouldn't have the audacity to answer it. Um, but Rabbi Moshe is arguing that there's a flip side to that, is when you have the ability to answer and you don't, you also do profound damage, right? So there's very much a sort of, you know, uh, between a rock and a hard place here, right? Like, do you answer or do you not answer? Damned if you do, damned if you don't. But that is always the problem of authority, right? Like, you have to recognize that when you take it up, right, you cannot be guaranteed that the consequences will always work out in the way that you want them to, and that you are the right person to step into it, right? So for Moshe, though, he recognized 
he is walking between the rock and the hard place, right? Between the frying pan and the fire, use whatever metaphor you want to um, you want to use here. And he wants to try to understand what gives him the right to do that. What gives him a right to answer the hard questions? Does he wear the crown, right? That was way, one way to look at it. When the question is who's in charge, Rav Moshe has to ask himself, does he wear the crown? Um, but Rav Moshe's whole point here is human beings don't wear the crown. God doesn't wear the crown, right? The Torah wears the crown. So we have to understand what that means. He says here, he says, uh, well, let me back it up one, one brief moment. He says, in my humble opinion, the scholars of earlier generations, despite their inferiority when compared to the Torah scholars of still earlier generations, and therefore uh, their concern, lest they rule an error, an error known to Hashem, did not refrain from assuming the obligation to do so. Meaning rabbis have always been struck with the problem. They didn't know as much as their teachers. And so the rabbis always have the fear that they're not going to, they're going to get it right. They're not going to get it right. They're going to make a mistake. Ramosh's point here is we have to remember Loba Shemayim He, the Torah is not in heaven. We have to rule to the best of our ability. And even if we are wrong, God will not punish us for it. That's one of Ramosh's main points here. We can get it wrong. God's not going to punish us. Uh, as it says in the Talmud, Elu ve'elu tivrelu kim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. If you make a decision with due diligence, the rabbi will be rewarded, the person will be rewarded for his efforts, even though he has not divined the real truth. Right? You do the best that you can, and that is going to have to be sufficient in God's eyes, even if it's also wrong in God's eyes. That's Ramosh's first point. But the next point is the important part. Right, The question of who wears the crown, it's not God, it's not the rabbis, it's the Torah, the letters of Torah. This is the same insight may be applied to the Talmud in Menachos that we saw. Rav, Rav taught that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to heaven to receive the Torah, he noticed that God was putting crowns to the Torah letters. Master of the universe, Moshe asked, what prevents you from giving the Torah without these crowns? Why are you putting them on there? In other words, as Rashi explains, why are you bothering to add this to the Torah script? Ramosha notes, though, that this answer of Rashi and the interpretation of the story doesn't quite make sense, right? Like the real question here is, again, why is God putting the crowns on the Torah? Like what's going on here? And the answer Moshe gives is as follows. He says, I believe that the interpretation I'm suggesting here corresponds exactly to the text. God made the very letters of Torah sovereign. That is, the Torah scholar may use his judgment to compare and contrast, and thus may rule according to the majority opinion as to what the meaning of the Torah's sovereign words are, despite the possibility that God might not think they're correct. But nevertheless, the Holy One gave the Torah to the Jewish people so that they would act in accordance with what is written uh, in it. Right At the end of the day, the question is who's in charge? It's the letters of Torah. Now, the reason I say this is so radical um, is because you might say, well, you know, if the letters of Torah in charge, then we just do what the Torah says. But here's the challenge, right? The only way we can know what the Torah means is through human interpretation. But humans don't have the final word. They are still bound by the letters of Torah themselves. And I want to play this out fully because Ramosh hints to it, but doesn't actually say it explicitly. The Torah that Moshe received at Harsinai, if you can want to know what it looks like, well, we believe it looks like the Sefer Torah that you open up in synagogue on Shabbat. And when you look at our Sefer Torahs, what you see are a bunch of letters on parchment. And the problem with our Sefer Torahs is you see those letters and you see those crowns, but if you've ever been a Torah reader before and you try to get up to read from a Sefer Torah, what do you discover very quickly? What's lacking is vowels and punctuation and, and trope, which means the Sefer Torah that we have, not so clear how to read it, which means the Sefer Torah that Moses received, the Jews received at Sinai, not exactly so clear how to read it, not exactly so clear what it means. So when God, or when Moshe, Moshe Feinstein says the letters of Torah are sovereign, it means that human beings aren't the ones who get to say jump, 
and everybody else says how high. God doesn't get to say jump and we all say how high, right? We look to the letters, but it's not exactly clear what they mean, right? There's a famous teaching, again, it's rabbinic, but also Kabbalistic, right? The reason the Torah doesn't have vowels and punctuation is so that it can be open to, you know, potentially an infinity of possible meanings, right? That's why when Ramosha says the letters of Torah are in charge, he's saying we have to turn to the Torah, but we are the ones who ultimately give meaning to the Torah. It's not really unlimited. That's why I don't really like that expression, right? The Torah is open to unlimited meaning. It's not open to anything. The letters of Torah bind us to what it might mean, but the punctuation that we put into those letters, the meaning that we read into those letters, there's a whole host of possibilities of what that can ultimately mean. And Rav Moshe is saying here, when we ask the question is who is in charge, the letters of Torah are charged. We pick up the letters of Torah, but as human beings, it's our job um, to give them meaning, right? And it's oh, what determines that legitimacy of that meaning is whether other people will be able to hear it, will they be able to read it, hear what we say and say, oh, that's the Torah, right? The reason Rav Moshe is authoritative as the great post of the 20th century is people opened his two votes and they saw that it was as if not Moshe Feinstein, but Moshe Rabbeinu was speaking from Harsinai, right? In the same way that Rabbi Akiva could be in his Beit Midrash and be able to teach things that even Moshe couldn't understand, but that Rabbi Akiva could say, this is Allah Moshe Misinai, and Moshe Rabbeinu was comfortable with it, right? That we look and we see the letters. We don't know exactly what they mean. They mean something, right? And we have to be able to, you know, bring the vowels, bring the trope, bring the punctuation to bring um, meaning to it, which means it's not totally up to us. We are still bound by those letters. They wear the crown. And I think that's fundamentally important because if the debate is about whether God wears the crown, human beings wear the crown, right? You end up in this place, position of, once we find out who wears the crown, you submit fully to their authority. But when the letters of Torah wear the crown, we don't exactly know what they want and what they say, right? And that's why it requires human beings to be able to try to figure that out. But it's not fully on us. We don't just get to decide out of nowhere what they mean. We are bound by those letters and we try to figure them out. That's what it means to study Torah, is to try to figure out what those letters mean, right? Knowing they can mean a lot of things. Now, the final point I'll make before I finish is that um, Rav Moshe Feinstein was often attacked for his uh, innovations, right? And again and again, he kind of finds himself having to defend this position that he is taking uh, about, you know, how is it that he can issue these rulings? And it's not because he, again, like I'm saying that he wears the crown. It's not because he's the great rabbi, right? The reason that he can say the things he says is because he reads them into Torah. He looks at those letters of Torah and he's providing meaning to them. He's giving them, again, vowels and punctuation. So here's what he writes in one of his own shuvot defending his uh, his stance. He says, regarding what my friend wrote when he questioned how we are allowed to rely in practice on halachic innovations like those I elucidated, especially when they're against the position of some of the later authorities, Ramosha classically would rule against uh, what we call achronim, later authorities. And it was, it's fairly radical in the way that he does that. Behold, I say, has there already been made an end and limit to the Torah? This is Ramosha's point. If you think I can't say anything new, then it's as if you're saying there's an end and a limit to the Torah, right? If you're saying that I can't say anything new, it's as if the Torah that you have already has punctuation and trope and vowels in it, right? Ramosha's effectively saying, that's not what my Torah looks like. I open up my Torah, I see the letters of Torah. They wear the crown, but it's my job to understand what they mean. And there's always that possibility of new meaning being read into them. He says, God forbid that we can only rule according uh, to, uh, to what is found in the books. The books have punctuation and vowels. If we're stuck by them, then the Torah is essentially dead. It's frozen. He says, and when we encounter questions that are not in books, 
where they already have been figured out, we should not answer them, even when it is our ability to answer them? In my opinion, it is forbidden to say this. For certainly the Torah will grow further, even in our time, and all those th- all those who have the ability to rule on Allah and questions, as it is possible to them, through good research in the Talmud and later rulings, with clear understanding and proper proofs, even if it is regarding a new issue that was not d- dealt with in, pre- in books previously. Right? But this does not mean that one should be arrogant in ruling and one should do all one can to prevent this. And Ramosha goes on and on. Like, you shouldn't be issuing a ruling unless you've really done your homework, unless you've really, really prepared and really, really thought it through. Right? There's always a temptation when, the, when you're the rabbi to think you wear the crown, which means anytime somebody comes up with a question, you've got the answer. Right? Uh, Ramosha is saying, no, no, no. Like, you shouldn't be opening your mouth unless you've really, really, really put the blood, sweat, and tears in to make sure that you know the, uh, you know, know the answer. Um, he uh, says, however, in a case of great need, although more so regarding an Aguna, uh, as is this case, this is actually responding to an Aguna problem, where he freed an Aguna and the, the respondent didn't like that, or Moshe is defending that he can do something like that, that he can take this position. Certainly, we are obligated to rule it if it appears to us to permit, and it is forbidden for us to be among those who are overly humble and leave a Jewish woman in change or to cause one to stumble in sin. Uh, or even if it is to prevent a Jew from a great financial loss. I mean, if there's reasons to rule, and again, it's not us, we don't wear the crown, but we see the meaning and the possibility within the letters of Torah, that is what we have to uh, to do. Now, there's something profoundly democratic and radical about Rav Moshe's approach, because when we ask the question, who's in charge? Well, uh, on the one hand, it's the Torah. The Torah wears the crown. But on the other hand, it's anybody who can potentially find meaning, put meaning into the Torah. Right. So authority is sort of everywhere and nowhere in a sense. Um, There's something a little bit anarchic about this. It's basically those who take up the responsibility of determining the meaning of Torah, which can be anybody. It's not special rabbis, not all the rabbis, not special rabbis. Right. It's any Jew who has the ability to find meaning in the Torah. Right. It could potentially bring new meaning and be authoritative because once they put that meaning in the Torah, the Torah is the crown. Right, that is the way that it has to, or that's the way that it's going, or uh, you know, going to uh, to be. Um, this, in many ways, is the great innovation that Judaism brings to the world. Without getting into all the um, the uh, dynamics of that, um, but for our purposes, uh, I want to at least hope it gives people a way to think about the question of who's in charge and recognize that the answer to that can never be a a simple one. So I know we only have a few minutes left. I'm happy to open up for questions if we have any during that time. Thank you so much, Rabbi Trubafa. Yes, we would love to take um, one or two questions or comments if anyone would like to uh, raise their hands or you can always write in the chat as well. i just like to say hello to Rabbi Trubaw. He was my congregational rabbi in Cleveland. And you know now I'm in Denver and it's nice to reconnect with you and hope Jen is well and the kids are well. Thank you, Mickey. Same to you and your and your family. I mean, I hear from you know the Har you know the Harwitz is here. I get to hear a little bit about how everybody's doing. So um, on your end, <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, I just wish you you know wish everybody well. Great. Hi, uh, Razel. Did I pronounce your name right? Yes, that's right. Hi. Thank you, Rabbi Chuvaf. I enjoyed your uh, session very much. Um, and my question is: in today's world, um, <laughs> I have I have nephews who range from. My sister calls Nia Hasidic to, you know, I mean, she gives every kind of term to the levels of practice of her sons, uh, which are, who are very, very from. I'm wondering uh, how it, it is Rabbi uh, Feinstein viewed among, and I hate terminology like this, like modern Orthodox today. I mean, in other words, is his 
are his teachings, are his innovations accepted? Are is he viewed in general favorably or yeah, I'm just wondering that know, it's, it's a very good question. What I should have mentioned is part of what made Ramosha unique is that he would that many, many non-Orthodox rabbis brought their questions to him. Meaning the range of people who brought questions to Ramosha was from modern to you know ultra, ultra orthodox. Um and that was also unique, right? That he wasn't just a rabbi, sort of a narrow, a narrow community. What's, what's important to realize, and again, this happens with all rabbinic thinkers, all thinkers who are radical of any kind, Jewish or not, is that their radicality gets kind of sanded off over time. To be able to fit them within a particular picture, within, especially within the tradition, particularly, you know, a, a, fellow, a relatively conservative tradition as Judaism tends to be. So in his own time, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, my God, I can't believe Ramosha said this. Now we view him as one of the, you know, to use Rabbi Soloveitchik's term, the Bale Masora, right? Like mm -hmm. he's one who, where the Torah was passed down through him and everything he said mm -hmm. was like Torah Misenai. But that, of mm -hmm. course, was not, you know, not the case. Right? We see this with, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who, you know, is the great social activist, you know, shaking everything up, challenging the world. And suddenly, you know, 2000 years later, right, he's now imagined coming down from Mount Sinai with a black hat and a long beard, right? Like, <laughs> you know, this is what we do. Unfortunately, there's, the, there's a problem here. So part of why I was really trying to emphasize was, again, recognizing the innovative nature of Rabbi Rabbi Feinstein teaching, but not by him saying, I'm in charge, therefore I can do whatever I want, right? It's mm -hmm. the, the Dafke, he could be more creative by recognizing that he is bound to the Torah and it's his job to try to figure out what it means, that that actually is the place of, of, of real creativity, not the person who puts the crown on their head and thinks everybody now has to listen to them. That always that position is always fundamentally conservative to a large extent, um, mm -hmm. because anything that would be a departure from the norm might actually undermine their own authority. Right. The, 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 what the king or what any authoritarian always fears doing most is giving the order that won't be listened to. Right. Like Rav Moshe is not afraid about issuing a psaac that or a ruling that people won't listen to, because that's not how he, he doesn't see himself as a ruler who's issuing commands. Right. <laughs> that's what makes him so fundamentally different. That's why he can say things other people don't say, because it's for him. It's about like, what does the Torah mean? What is it trying to say? It's not about I'm in charge. You must listen. Thank you. And, and by the way, my last name is Solo. It's from Soloveitchik, although I don't know any direct, direct connection. Right. <laughs> Rabbi Soloveitchik's like, I want to say grandmother was a Feinstein or grandfather, uh, great grandfather was a Feinstein. I have to double check again what the relationship was between them. Anyway, I was very lucky in my life to hear him. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much. Um, unfortunately, I believe we're out of time, but I'm glad we could um, answer a couple questions. And thank you again so much for your presentation, Rabbi Truboff, and uh, to BMHBJ for their partnership in today's event. Um, our next class will be next Thursday, December 7th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. That will be Finding Light in Darkness with uh, Melanie Gruenwald. So we hope you can all tune into that as well. Um, and thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.